Hello and welcome to Navara Live. I'm Moyle V. McLean. We've got a packed show and for it, I'm joined by Ash Saka. I'm so glad you got the black jumper memo, Moyle. I was scared you'd missed it. <laughs> yeah, we both got the dress code memos today. Coming up later tonight, we talk to an expert on international humanitarian law about Israel's actions inside Gaza. We'll also be covering the Labour rebellion over the vote for a ceasefire in Gaza. Let's go to our first story. Israel's raid of the Al-Shiva hospital has entered its second day. IDF forces took control of the complex yesterday and little information has emerged since then. Reporting from Khan Yunus in southern Gaza, Al Jazeera's Hani Mahmoud said this. What the Israeli military is doing is destroying the hospital, damaging all of its facilities, going in building by building, destroying all of its properties inside. For example, the specialized surgeries building have been completely destroyed from inside. All of its basement where it, 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 it the basement that houses a, a, a medical uh, warehouse where they have all the medicine and all the medical equipment. All the upper floors of that building been destroyed, including the including patient rooms, including beds, including all the equipment, x-ray department being completely destroyed. 200 people being uh, rounded up, interrogated, uh, stripped of their clothes at the courtyard of the hospital and taken to unknown areas. The fate of those 200 people from evacuees and the medical team there is unknown to us and to anyone else in, in the hospital. If that harrowing report is true, then that is a clear assault on civilians and civilian infrastructure. So why is this raid happening? Israel has justified its assault on the Al-Shifa hospital by claiming there is a Hamas command centre underneath it. The US is backing that claim. And if there is such a control centre, it would be a significant military target for the IDF. And a significant military target provides Israel legal cover against accusations of war crimes for targeting civilians sheltering inside a civilian hospital. The IDF has released evidence supposedly supporting this claim. but. The veracity of it is questionable. On Wednesday, the IDF initially posted a seven-minute video showing an IDF soldier. They wanted to show off some weapons they say were found behind an MRI machine in Al-Shifa Hospital. Let's take a look at part of that video now. Shalom everyone, Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan from the IDF here. I am in the Shifa Hospital, as you can see from the sign behind me, and as you can clearly see from the building, we are going to do a one-shot video. One shot, no editing of all of the evidence that we have found just now in this building of the Shifa. So we're inside the MRI center of the Shifa hospital. Israeli troops breached here a few hours ago and we have cleared the area, make sure that it's safe. And a few of the most interesting things that we have found totally confirm, without any doubt, that Hamas systematically uses hospitals in their military operations in violation of international law. And what we have found, I think, is only the tip of the iceberg. Let me show you a few examples. Security cameras have been obstructed. All of the security cameras are uh, covered, and this isn't the only one. You'll see the rest of them here. Follow me as we go in and we will see the MRI center and see the weapons that Hamas has hidden inside. This is uh, where patients come in order to get MRI services. 
will proceed into a more secluded area. And the lighting here is out, so we're using flashlights. We're now, as you can see, in an MRI room. I don't know when this was used the last time. I don't know when it was used the last time, but it is definitely an MRI machine. And if you follow me behind the MRI machine, I'll show you what our troops exposed just minutes ago. In military terms, this is a grab bag, grab and go of a Hamas combatant. And if you zoom in and we get some light over here, what you will be able to see are is military equipment. There is a an AK-47, there are cartridges, am ammo, uh, there are grenades in here, of course, uniforms, and all of that. This was hidden very conveniently, secretly behind the MRI machine. On the other side, we found a backpack with what appears to be very important intelligence, including a laptop, and we'll show you that momentarily. Let's go see the next room. Just to recap, so the IDF say there they found a grab bag for one combatant and some cameras covered in tape, as well as a bag containing a laptop. Now, we have no way of verifying these finds, and given the misinformation that's been proven to be coming out of Israel and their confusion over calendars, that's a necessity. But the original IDF post of that video had this caption. No cuts, no edits, just the undeniable truth, and then a description of the video. That post was then deleted and replaced with this one. The description remains, but the specific text, no cuts, no edits, just the undeniable truth, was removed. Interesting. Now, even if the grab bag and laptop are genuine, and they could be, it's a very long way from making Al-Shifa a control centre or legitimising the attack on the hospital as being one on a significant military target. But let's go to the next part of that video. So we're still in the MRI center. The backpack was found in here and it was also hidden behind the MRI machine. As you can see, the rest of the equipment here is proper hospital equipment, right? Bandages and medical gear. Uh, it seems as if there's no real shortage because there's a lot of equipment here, but we'll leave that for another discussion. Let's go see weapons and other prohibited items. As we walk through the uh, main corridor here, our troops did a preliminary search of the area. We tried to uncover the cameras, but all of the cameras have been obstructed. You can see there's black uh, tape covering it. And when our troops open this uh, closet here, which is in the main part of the clinic, this is what they found. These weapons have absolutely no business being inside a hospital. The only reason they're here is because Hamas put them here, because they use this place, like many other hospitals and ambulances and sensitive facilities inside the Gaza Strip for their illicit military purposes. So there's Kalashnikov rifles here, even uh, ammunition. And let's go see uh, the, uh, the next part of, the, uh, uh, of, uh, of what we have here. So far, we have some guns, ammunition, and a grab bag. Now, the IDF soldier is right. These things don't have any place in a hospital. But again, Israel's justification for the raid and the holding of thousands of civilians wasn't the presence of a few bits of weaponry. It was the existence of a network of tunnels and a Hamas command center. Here's the next part of that video. Another MRI machine. 
another MRI machine where behind it we also found a contraband similar to what you saw in the other areas. And let's go see the last thing, which is more related to intelligence, which I think we will be able to extract quite a lot of interesting intelligence from. If you can see, follow me. Up here, on top of a spare part of the uh, MRI department, we found another grab bag. This is, it's empty because we emptied it and cleared it so that we could use and see it. So this is where we found it. And here are the contents of the bag. The contents of the bag are full military kit for one Hamas terrorist. A live grenade, ammunition, fighting vest with insignia, boots and of course uniforms. And last but not least, Standard AK-47, inside the hospital, hidden in a secluded area. Take a look at this door here. Blast-proof door, which is part of the clinic and part of the infrastructure of the hospital. Everything else looks like a hospital, only this part doesn't. Are you keeping count? That was a military pack, supposedly, for one, one person. Here's the last part of that video. Last part. Now we will see something that uh, our Intel researchers are looking into. Uh, hold on, before we go on, let's have a look at what we found inside the very same cabinet that houses medical equipment. You can see all kinds of standard military uh, medical stuff. We found another go-to bag, this bag here. And again, we opened it up in order to make sure that it's safe to touch and show. So please don't give me any of that. You opened it up and you placed it there. This is the bag that we found, and this is the stuff that was in. Now, there's insignia, military insignia, a knife. For those of you who read Arabic, you'll be able to uh, understand what it says here. But it's uh, Hamas, the military wing, Kataib al-Qassam, of course, a vest with equipment, and as always, an AK-47, standard gear, grab and go, which they thought would be a, a good place to, uh, to store inside a hospital. And the last item, which I'm sure will be very interesting to uh, analyze, is a laptop. We found it in the MRI room. This is how the laptop looks. I don't know who it belonged to, but now it is being analyzed by our Intel people. Tactical radio communications, which we will analyze. Lots of disks, which will be analyzed. And a computer, which at first glance already provides a lot of incriminating uh, evidence. I'd love to know exactly what that incriminating evidence is. All we're seeing there is a blurred screen. Uh, the IDF also released these photographs detailing their apparent finds within the hospital. The location of this photo is not clear, but it shows eight automatic we weapons, a handgun, ammunition magazines, and military gear. Some of these items appear to also have been shown in the video we just played to you. And this photo, taken in a room not shown in the IDF video, has a few more finds. It seems to show six grenades, ammunition clips, walkie-talkies, and what appears to be a box of dates. At most, this shows that someone was stashing weapons in a part of the hospital at some point in time. And if that's true, that is a misuse of that hospital under international law. But the IDF is not arbiter of international law. They're combatant 
in a very one-sided war. And they're detaining a large number of civilians, including 36 premature babies, sick and injured, medical staff, while they conduct a raid which might itself amount to a war crime. Of course, what we've been shown follows just a single day of occupation. Perhaps a command centre will yet turn up in what the IDF has previously described as, quote, the beating heart of Hamas's operation. Hamas, as well as multiple medics who've worked at Al-Shifa, has denied the existence of military infrastructure at the hospital. There's also no external validation of the IDF's claims, and journalists travelling into Gaza not the Palestinian journalists already there, can only do so under IDF escort. The BBC voted a, quote, small part of Al-Shifa with the IDF, where they reported that they were not permitted to talk to any doctors or patients there. At any rate, the IDF appears to have no plans to leave the hospital anytime soon. IDF international spokesperson Richard Hecht has appeared on CNN, where he was asked what the IDF's mission in the hospital is. We're looking for specific uh, Hamas infrastructure that we had intelligence on. So that's why we went into something very specific inside the hospital. As I said, this is going to take time. We might come out after we find what we found. And uh, this is going to be ongoing because there might be uh, tunnels, there might be weapon caches. This is going to be a long haul, Dana. A long haul meaning what? That they're going to be in this hospital for, for, for days, for weeks? Can you be more specific when you say long haul? I'm, I'll, I'll be waiting to see the assessment of the operation this evening, and then we'll make our assessments. If we need to be more inside the area to get what we need to get, uh, we'll be there. We, we believe that the hospital, it's our interest that the hospital will be able to work and take care of the civilians that are in, 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 dire, and, and in dire situation well, and need care. Today, there's fuel coming into Gaza through the Rafah crossing. It's, not, it's our goal for this hospital to keep taking care of its patients. Sadly, Hamas have installed themselves and uh, have been working from underneath the hospital. So That's what is the IDF to doing to, to uh, reach that goal? To pr- not just protect patients, but help the patients who were in dire need of, of base and the doctors who are trying to uh, to treat these patients who were in dire need of basics, fuel, medicine, all of the above. Did, is the IDF helping to provide that as they come into that hospital? Dana, we've been trying for weeks. We've been trying for weeks also to have people leave the hospital. We created a safe passage from the hospital for people to connect to the, to the corridors. A lot of people left. Mm-hmm. Two nights ago when there was a fuel crisis, we, and again, Hamas have the fuel, by the way, but we, we came and gave canisters of fuel. Sadly, they didn't take the fuel, maybe because Hamas didn't allow them to. Today, when we went in, we took incubators, we took food, we took humanitarian assistance when our soldiers came in. We are doing everything we can. Uh, and I know it's pretty dire and hard in there, but we have to take care of well, Hamas. What is the end goal bes- with regard to the hospital? I understand that your end goal with regard to Hamas is to... Uh, try to find Hamas terrorists who you believe are there. And again, I just want to state, we have not yet seen evidence of that. Well, before I get to my question, can you just a- answer, is it your intention that the world will see the evidence that you say exists that Hamas is operating inside and below that hospital? I don't think it's my goal. My goal is to, to show the world. My goal is to make sure that the Hamas infrastructure is dismantled. 
The situation in the hospital is now so dire that the World Health Organization is seeking a full medical evacuation from Al-Shifa. WHO official Richard Brennan told Reuters this about the conditions inside the complex. Health conditions at Al-Shifa Hospital remain critical. We do not have an update uh, as of this morning, uh, but uh, we still have grave concerns for the patients and the staff in the hospital. Uh, we understand there are still 600 patients, uh, of whom uh, 36 of the, are those uh, neonates who don't have uh, access to the incubators any longer because of the lack of fuel. Uh, we understand there are still 27 critically ill patients, around 280 staff and between 3,000 and 4,000 displaced persons taking shelter. Of course, the military incursion um, over the last 24 to 36 hours complicates that uh, that medical work incredibly. Uh, we're looking at options to evacuate the hospital. Some patients have been able to leave, uh, but I, I, my understanding is that has not been the case uh, for uh, probably uh, around, uh, again, 48 hours. Um, so we are looking at options uh, for, for medical evacuation, but there are a lot of uh, security concerns. There are a lot of logistics constraints. Um, our options are rather limited. Um, but we hope to have some better news in the next 24 hours. Ash, we've heard from medics in Gaza today that Ashali Hospital, the last functioning hospital in Gaza City, is now surrounded by Israeli tanks. Are they just going to repeat this strategy that they've carried out on Ashifa? This will be a strategy which is repeated by the IDF across different hospitals, because one of the things that you've got to remember is that they've spent weeks building the propaganda case against Al-Shifa Hospital. So it wasn't that long ago, just a couple of weeks ago, when Israel released this quite elaborate animation purporting to show a very elaborate system of tunnels and command centers directly underneath Al-Shifa Hospital. Now, for People who can remember the war on terror, it's not that dissimilar to the sort of mansion-like network of caves that Osama bin Laden was alleged to have been hiding in. You know, it had everything short of an Olympic-sized swimming pool and a jacuzzi. Um, so far, none of the evidence evidence that Israel has presented comes anywhere close to supporting those allegations, those very specific claims that they made in order to justify treating Al-Shifa Hospital as a military target. So let's remind ourselves about what some of those specific claims were. As you said, Al-Shifa was referred to as the beating heart of Hamas. Zippy Hotavelli, just two days ago, the Israeli ambassador to the UK, alleged on Sky News that Al-Shifa Hospital is Hamas headquarters. The White House claimed to be in, in possession of intelligence that suggested that Al-Shifa Hospital was a base of both military operations and a place where Israeli hostages were or were being held. So, these are very specific claims where if they were true, they could be considered grounds under international law for Al-Shifa Hospital to be stripped of its protected status under the Geneva Conventions. Now, the circumstances in which hospitals lose their protected status in war, that's very, very limited. So, it has to be being used for military purposes, by combatants, uh, the 
operations taking place from the hospital or the personnel who are stationed there have to be there specifically because they want to avoid being targeted. They want to avoid being uh, killed or inhibited in some way by military attacks. The And the action taken um, has to be done with the, an absolute... Um, with, with the absolute protection of, of civilian life in mind. So there has to be specific warnings and opportunities for civilians and patients to evacuate. There has to be minimal disruption to m- medical procedures and the treatment of patients. And the action has to be proportionate. And also these assessments have to be on the basis of fact. Now, Like you said, it might be that new evidence emerges in the coming hours or coming days, but we have not seen anything close to the elaborate network of tunnels and, you know, an established and and significant base of operations. And we certainly haven't seen evidence so far of Al-Shifa Hospital being Hamas headquarters. Now, if no more evidence that's reliable and verified surfaces suggesting that Al-Shifa Hospital was in fact Hamas headquarters. This really could be Israel's WMD moment. Big claim, nothing coming up to support it. Um, There is an awful lot of international pressure, France calling for a ceasefire, Spain calling for a ceasefire, and even President Biden, who has ruled out calling for a ceasefire, has said that hospitals in Gaza should be a lot more protected than they are. So that could be a very dicey moment for Israel geopolitically in relation uh, to its allies. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is a strategy which is simply applied to another hospital. You just keep going until you find that headquarters you're looking for stationed under an an MRI machine. Before our next story, I want to talk to you about something important. Having really great, pluralistic, left-wing journalism that challenges the status quo is, in my opinion, something worth funding. Navara Media isn't reliant on flaky or fragile funding models. We are powered by people, people like you, who trust our journalism and value what we do. If you can, please consider donating one hour's wage per month or whatever you can afford at navaramedia.com forward slash support. We couldn't do this without you. Let's go on to our next story. Last night was a real moment of moral truth for Labour MPs. It's worth noting that the Welsh Senate managed to vote a week before for a motion in favour of a ceasefire in Gaza, and Welsh Labour government ministers abstained, but backbenchers had a free vote. Holyrood's ceasefire vote is coming up next week. But last night, the SNP put forward one of two amendments to the King's speech concerning the situation in Gaza. Labour put forward the other the Labour amendment didn't call for a ceasefire. The SNP amendment did. The result? Both were voted down by the Tory majority. But it's the divisions in Labour that are grabbing headlines today. Ahead of the vote, Labour MPs were subjected to a three-line party whip to support the Labour amendment and abstain from voting on the SNP amendment. Any MPs in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet who went against this would lose their position. Some did it anyway. 56 
Labour MPs out of a possible 193 voted for the SNP amendment, backing an immediate ceasefire. And four more say they would have voted for it if they had been able to make it down to Westminster for that vote. Those four MPs are Tony Lloyd, Kim Johnson, Mick Whitley and Olivia Blake. Most importantly, eight shadow ministers and two parliamentary aides publicly defied the whip to vote for the SNP amendment. I'm going to read out every single one of them to you right now. Jess Phillips, Shadow Home Office Minister. Naz Shah, Shadow Minister for Crime Reduction. Asfal Khan, Shadow Minister for Export. Yasmin Qureshi, Shadow Women and Equalities Minister. Paula Barker, Shadow Minister for Devolution. Rachel Hopkins, Shadow Minister for Veterans. Sarah Owen, Shadow Minister for Local Government and Faith. Andy Slaughter, Shadow Solicitor General. Mary Foy, Private Parliamentary Secretary to Angela Rayner, and Dan Cardin, Private Parliamentary Secretary. Most high profile of those resignations is, of course, Jess Phillips. Phillips also wrote a letter to explain her decision. Here's some of what she said in that letter. This week has been one of the toughest weeks in politics since I entered Parliament. I've tried to do everything I could to make it so that it was this was not the outcome, but it is with a heavy heart that I will be leaving my post in the Shadow Home Office team. On this occasion, I must vote with my constituents, my head and my heart, which has felt as if it were breaking over the last four weeks with the horror of the situation in Israel and Palestine. I can see no route where the current military action does anything but put at risk the hope of peace and security for anyone in the region now and in the future. Ash, Jess Phillips is not associated with the left of the party. What does this say about the scale of yesterday's rebellion? Well, I think this shows that Keir Starmer has a problem in terms of getting the entirety of his party behind his line, which is humanitarian pauses, but ultimately we're going to defer matters of foreign policy over to the US. Why did Jess Phillips rebel and you know, voluntarily resign rather than abstain on a motion calling for a ceasefire. I think there are two things that you've got to bear in mind. The first is obviously Jess Phillips does have a large Muslim population in her constituency. There is a very straightforward electoral case that if you want to hold on to your seat, you don't want to uh, piss off that community too much. And as we've seen uh, in terms of the, you know, huge numbers of British Muslims who are out on the protests every weekend. This is a matter uh, which is very close to the Muslim community's heart. But I don't think that's the only thing that explains it. Rishanara Ali, who is a uh, MP based around Bethnal Green, she has a very large Muslim population in her constituency, and yet she didn't vote in favour for a ceasefire. So large Muslim populations aren't the only thing that explain why an MP might want to rebel against the leadership line. I think that there is a genuine crisis of conscience. The Labour Party is still very much scarred by the war in Iraq. The loss of trust from many voters towards the party, a sense of very deep betrayal on the Labour benches. And Jess Phillips herself has said, look, you know, I'm not an M- I wasn't an MP during the vote to go to war in Iraq. But had I been, I would have rebelled against Tony Blair. So I don't think that this is something which is wildly new for her. I think that this is two things combining. One is there's an electoral case. You don't vote against the interests of having a large Muslim electorate in your constituency. But then the second thing I think is that this was a genuine matter of conscience for Jess Phillips, and that's why she resigned. 
Some of Jess Phillips's fellow MPs also spoke passionately about their support for a ceasefire, except when it came down to it, some didn't actually support one. This is a video from MP for Batley and Spen, Kim Ledbetter, that she posted to social media ahead of the Commons vote. I just wanted to send out a short message ahead of the vote in Parliament this evening, which sets out my position clearly. Of course, I want a ceasefire in Gaza, which human being on this planet wouldn't. But what I won't be doing this evening is voting for the SNP amendment. And the reason I won't be doing that is because even if I did, nothing would change. There is no quick and simple solution to the crisis in Gaza. We have to set out a framework which leads towards that much-needed ceasefire. If the vote won't change anything, if it's completely meaningless, why was A, there a three-line whip to vote against the SNP motion? And why don't you just vote for it anyway? How on earth does Labour's wishy-washy amendment set out any such framework towards that piece? But, you know, I'm going to give this to Kim Ledbetter. At least she announced ahead of time that she wouldn't be voting for the SNP motion. Some Labour MPs took a third, even more bizarre, even cowardly, you might say, route. Here's Helen Hayes, Shadow Minister for Children and Early Years, speaking passionately in favour of an immediate ceasefire during the debate before that vote. We cannot look at the horror and suffering on our TV screens and conclude that the scale of destruction we are witnessing is proportionate or that the denial of aid into Gaza is within international law. And again, we must stand in solidarity with all those affected, the injured, the families who are bereaved and those who are so desperately worried about their loved ones in Gaza. I have heard from thousands of my constituents who have been in contact with me over the past month to share their views. They too are completely horrified at what they are seeing and they want to see every possible effort being made to stop the conflict. They understand that this is what is being signalled by the word ceasefire. In calling for a ceasefire, no one is suggesting that the cessation should be unilateral or that it should be without conditions. Hamas must release the hostages. In war, ceasefires do not always hold, and I think we must all be realistic about the intensity of this conflict. But a bilateral humanitarian cessation of the violence, a ceasefire, is surely the minimum we should be demanding in the face of such horrific suffering. I fully understand that colleagues will have different views from their constituencies, and there is no easy response to this appalling conflict. We must all treat each other with respect at this time. But we must, all of us, be able to stand in front of our own constituents with integrity and at peace with our own conscience on the issues that matter most to them. And my conscience tells me that I must call for a ceasefire today. So how did Helen Hayes' conscience make her vote on the SNP amendment that called for an immediate ceasefire that came after that heartfelt speech? Well, she abstained. Here's what Helen Hayes tweeted after the vote. Today, I made my position absolutely clear. I support a ceasefire in Gaza. I did not vote for a divisive amendment by the SNP, but I will continue to represent the views of my constituents on the issue and to call for a hashtag ceasefire now. I'm calling for a ceasefire now by not voting for a ceasefire now. Makes total sense. But then former Labour speechwriter Alex Nunns made an interesting claim. A reliable Labour source has told me certain MPs were given licence by the leadership to sound like they supported a ceasefire for social media clips and so on, provided they didn't actually vote for one. A scheme to deceive constituents on an issue of life and death. Classy. Now, this is a very bold claim, right? So, Navarra HQ, 
did what we do. We actually did some reporting and we reached out to our sources. We've had it confirmed by a separate Labour PLP member that this claim is true and that Labour MPs are discussing it widely. And the names of two MPs have been mentioned explicitly in connection with such a deal, let's call it that. These are Helen Hayes and Florence Eshalomi, MP for Vauxhall. According to our source, their, quote, resignation letters were written, but their minds were changed last minute. Florent Eshalomi has also released a statement after the vote she abstained on, and this is what she wrote in her accompanying tweet. I have received many emails from constituents. I have made my position clear in that I support a humanitarian ceasefire. I did not vote for the divisive SNP amendment, and I will continue to represent the views of my constituents. Without getting too conspiratorial, both Eshalomi and Hayes use the exact same language in their message, and I'm sure there's some sort of document going around, but I made my position clear. I support a ceasefire. I did not vote for the divisive SNP amendment and I will continue to represent the views of my constituents. Keir Starmer does not have a gun in my back. Meep morp. We've reached out to both Helen Hayes and Florence Eshalomi to ask for comment on this, but at the time of broadcast, they hadn't got back. However, someone who didn't even pretend to vote for a ceasefire or be conflicted about the decision was Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting. Streeting released a four-page letter on social media that he sent to constituents explaining his choice. It's a lot of words, so I'm just going to sum up his main point, which is he thinks a ceasefire is pointless to call for because Hamas will violate it, and he's also saying it's meaningless to publicly support a ceasefire as a British opposition politician because it needs to be negotiated by international diplomats. The same argument that Starmer uses in the same breath as him saying, okay, but I'm going to be in government really soon and I need to have a good relationship as well with the G7. Now, Streeting appeared on LBC earlier today to further double down on this argument. Where I disagree with those who've, in, you know, in terms of colleagues in Parliament, uh, on this question of ceasefire is, okay, you've, you've voted for a ceasefire, you've told your constituents that you've done that and uh, and the principle that you've stood on... Uh, how? How's that come about when you've got Hamas saying they would repeat the 7th of October again and again? You've got the Israelis saying, we're not going to allow Hamas to do that. We're going to take them out. So where's this ceasefire coming from? Mm. It's all very well in politics to, especially when you're under pressure and you've got the emails coming in and, you know... And, to and vote people, for what you wish would happen. And people who are... Who are really distressed, really distressed about the images and who couldn't be. You, know, it's, you, you, you've got to provide real solutions. And I'm afraid as, 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 as politicians, you can't vote for something unless you've got a serious plan. And I think Keir Starmer understands that. And he understands that, yes, of course, there are people in our own country who are looking at him for leadership. Our allies and our adversaries around the world are also looking at him and questioning, well, what kind of prime minister would we be dealing with in Keir Starmer? And I think our G7 allies are looking at Keir Starmer and thinking, yeah, this is a guy who's committed to this partnership, who will work in lockstep with us for our collective defence and security. Um, and even, you know, partners in the Arab League who maybe aren't quite in the same place as, as the UK government on this question of ceasefire and on the same place as, as where Keir is, but will respect the position and respect the consistency. So, you know, what we're focused on is real solutions, both to the humanitarian disaster now, 
but also how we stop this endless cycle of violence and bring about a state of Palestine alongside a safe and secure state of Israel. Never mind that one of the key leaders of the G7, Emmanuel Macron, has called for a ceasefire and has also said that he hopes the UK will follow suit, which they don't seem to be doing anytime soon. But do you know what? Do you know what? I have less disdain for Wes Streeting than I do for the likes of Helen Hayes. Sure, Streeting is using up an awful lot of words to try and intellectualise why he's a careerist who won't oppose a campaign that's killed 0.5 of the Gazan population in a month. But he outright doesn't back a ceasefire, and he's said that. However, Helen Hayes is expressing a moral position that she doesn't actually action when it comes down to it. She says she supports a ceasefire. She speaks passionately about the need for a ceasefire. But when push comes to shove, she won't actually back one. I think that there is an offensive irony in Helen Hayes saying that it's a matter of integrity. You know, I've got to vote with my, you know, I've got to go with my conscience and then to vote against her conscience. I mean, where's the integrity in that. And you're right. You're right to say that there is something deceptive. There is something underhand and utterly lacking in integrity to adopt all of the rhetoric and the social media signaling of backing a ceasefire. And then when presented with your one parliamentary means of forcing that to be the UK's line, you abstain. I mean, it's it's com- it's completely indefensible from a moral or a political perspective because if you're going to abstain on the motion, you may as well just be worth streeting and saying, look, I'm not going to vote for a ceasefire. These are the reasons why, blah, 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 go Israel. You know, that's at least got some level of honesty to it, even if I completely object to the foundation of and the content of his analysis of the situation. So it's just, it's, it's, I think that this is the worst of the Labour Party. It is a desire to appear compassionate and empathetic, a desire to recognize the suffering of others because that reflects on your own identity and your own politics. But ultimately, when push comes to shove, you're going to prioritize your own career overdoing anything about those injustices. I think there's another thing to this as well that I've been discussing recently, and I, I really want to get your take on it, this this war between morality and strategy. You know, stay in labour, stay on the front bench, it's more effective for change-making versus, you know, follow your conscience, resign, quit the party, etc. Where do you sit on this, and why are the two seemingly so opposed at the moment? Well, because there is a tension between these two things. And I don't pretend to have a straightforward answer of always do this or never do that. I think it's different for different politicians. Ultimately, if you're a shadow minister for you know some molecular role, I don't think it is that much of a big deal um, for you to resign. It's probably the more powerful thing to do in this instance to resign over calling for a ceasefire because the actual power that you have is very little when it comes to the direction of policy and the impact you can have with your resignation here is much, much bigger. I think that changes once you start getting to the shadow cabinet level. So once you start thinking about people who are shadowing those great offices of state or have um, as part of their remit 
something really huge. So the example I'm thinking of here is Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband, as we all know, has been across the climate brief and there has been relentless negative briefing against him by Labour right-wingers who want to water down Keir Starmer's commitment to things like a Green New Deal, funding decarbonisation even further than it already has been watered down. Now, I'm not trying to say well, climate versus Palestine. Climate's obviously more important, but there is actually a strategic consideration here, which is would you want the one person who's really pushing for big state spending over climate change to do exactly what the Labour right want and resign over calling for a ceasefire? That's a genuine strategic uh, consideration. For me, the answer there is no. But like I said, uh, that's different from people whose briefs are that bit smaller, and I think they can have greater impact with a resignation. So it's not about going, here's the hard and fast rule, and here's the thing that you always have to do. But it is about considering all the different factors. What's your brief? What are you doing with it? Whose interests are you standing up for within it? And what is this issue at hand? And this was part of the debate I had, not with a Labour Party member, but with former Conservative MP Rory Stewart, which is what is the line you should break with the party leadership on? For him, it was voting against a Cameron-imposed three-line whip to abolish the House of Lords. For me, I thought that it was quite revealing and telling that the straw that broke the camel's back was about a matter of constitution and how British political structures work rather than something like austerity. And we disagreed about what the straw that broke the camel's back ought to be. So I think that there's a lot of variety. You're not going to have um, a huge amount of agreement um, between individual politicians on this. But I think that if you're, you know, a shadow minister for something tiny, just fucking resign. <laughs> That's going to be the most impactful thing you can do. Let's go on to our next story. Multiple human rights agencies have accused Israel of breaching international humanitarian law in Gaza. Human Rights Watch has demanded that Israel be investigated for war crimes over its strikes on Gazan hospitals, while Amnesty International has described the mounting evidence of Israeli war crimes in Gaza as, quote, damning. And South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, has said that the country has now referred Israel to the International Criminal Court for investigation over alleged war crimes committed in Gaza. The ICC is the only permanent international court in which claims of war crimes and crimes against humanity can be tried. And referrals to the ICC are nothing new for Israel. But despite many of Israel's acts against Palestine appearing to fall under the court's jurisdiction, it has not, not once, upheld a complaint against Israel. Now, the ICC only comes into play once international humanitarian law is broken. Generally, things don't go that far anyway. Rogue states are usually forced to uphold international law by the global community through diplomacy, the application of sanctions and other measures, but that doesn't seem to apply to Israel either. Now, Israel's by no means the first country which has seemed to commit human rights violations as the rest of the world stands by, twiddling their fingers, or rather the Westers, but the situation in Gaza is another startling example of hypocrisy on the part of Western leaders like Joe Biden and Rishi Sunak who are calling for sanctions from somewhere like Russia. The power of humanitarian law has become a persistent question in the last decade, at least it has for me. And if Western allied countries can claim whatever they like as political cover for human rights violations and our leaders will back them up, 
Some are even asking, what's the point in even having international humanitarian law? Well, to get some answers, earlier today I spoke to Ahmed Abafol, international criminal lawyer. When Western leaders in general say Israel has the right to self-defense, I think what they mean uh, is not that Israel has the right to um, defend itself. Uh, legally speaking, Israel has the right to protect itself and to protect its citizens. But it does not, in this particular case, in fact, has the right to self-defense. The right to self-defense in international law is governed under Article 51 of the United Nations Charter. And it can only be invoked when a state is being attacked by another state. This is not the situation here. Uh, uh, Israel is not being attacked by uh, by uh, any state, but by uh, by a non-state actor, uh, a resistance group or an armed group or whatever you want to call it, but not a state. So it cannot invoke rights of defense. Another layer to to the legal understanding of the rights of defense in international law is that uh, an occupying power, especially in this case, the longest occupation in modern history, cannot invoke self-defense against the people it occupies. Because the law, by virtue, uh, give those people the right to resist. The, 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 the right to resist an occupation is a right protected by international law, including international humanitarian law, and regulated that such resistance must be in compliance with international humanitarian law. But Israel does not have the right to, uh, to self-defense in this case because it's naturally, it has positioned itself as the aggressor by perpetuating the longest occupation in modern history. Uh, this is not only my analysis. As a matter of fact, we have already uh, the International Court of Justice, the, the, the uh, UN uh, 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 Court, saying that in the situation in Palestine, this was in the advisory opinion in 2004, um, the court spoke about self-defense because Israel invoked self-defense, saying that it built the uh, separation wall, the apartheid wall, in order to protect itself, uh, and this was in self-defense. And the court denied that. The court said clearly that the, um, the right self-defense, the, 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 the regime of law that governing the, the, the right of self-defense under Article 51, is irrelevant in this case because Israel is an occupying power and cannot invoke the right of self-defense against the people it occupies. So... I hope this is settled, and, and, and it is settled in law, but people must understand when political readers are, are, are using this word, Israel has a right to, uh, uh, to defend itself, uh, it doesn't hold any solid ground uh, legally, and it's not based on any uh, legal interpretation, but it, this is rather a political uh, rhetoric. Uh, uh, to, to I wanted to clarify this at the outset. But in, in terms of international humanitarian law, which is the body of law that governs the, uh, the armed conflict with the international and non-international armed conflict, and, and um, all uh, uh, parties to the conflict must comply with the rules of international humanitarian law, especially the Fourth Geneva Convention uh, about the protection of civilians uh, during armed conflict. Israel is clearly in violation of international humanitarian law. When you have Israeli leaders saying they want to uh, impose a medieval siege, and I quote in the in the words of the Minister of Defense, there will be no fuel, no electricity, no water, nothing. We fight, quote unquote, human animals, and we act accordingly. These were the words of the of the Israeli um, uh, defense minister. When you have the spokesperson of the Israeli occupying forces saying the focus is on damage not on accuracy. This also gives you an indication that Israel is not intended 
intending to uh, uh, protect international humanitarian law. Some strikes in densely populated refugee camps, killing uh, uh, tens of civilians, have no justification whatsoever. Uh, in addition, Israel has been lying uh, uh, about uh, its targets in Gaza. Uh, it lied about uh, several incidents, including hospitals. It went into hospitals, committed crimes, but it couldn't substantiate its claims that there is, quote-unquote, Hamas command centers in, in those hospitals. So, to be honest, Israel's uh, excuses are so uh, not convincing, and it's making a mockery of the whole body of international humanitarian law. Um, uh, so those who, who are believing and buying into Israeli propaganda, they're also making, making a mockery of, of international law. And personally, I, I don't really think um, that Israel, uh, Israel's allies uh, do really believe Israel, because I do believe they have their own intelligence, they have their own legal advisors who can tell them that Israel is violating international law. And I think this is not a conclusion that they just arrived to yesterday or the day before. This is something they know from day one of the war. This is something they should have known for the past decades. But the question is, if you know that a regime is committing, systematically committing human rights violations and, and, and uh, international humanitarian law uh, violations that could amount to war crimes and even crimes against humanity, and we've been also hearing uh, genocidal rhetoric, why would you continue uh, provide such a regime with uh, with uh, arms and weapons and diplomatic coverage. Unfortunately, Israel's allies, I can clearly say and claim, they're not only complicit in Israel's crimes, they're actually actively participating in those crimes uh, and responsible for them. The West and Western leaders have often, in an unearned fashion, I would say, uh, appointed themselves as this global police force. What damage has the conduct of people like Joe Biden, Rishi Sunak, European leaders, even like Macron, been done to that reputation during the course of this conflict? Uh, it's, it's, it's done a lot. In, in fact, it's showing us what, what a lot of us uh, already knew, that we don't, in fact, live in a post-colonial world after World War II and the so-called international rules-based order. It seems clearly that we live in a neo-colonial and, and an imperial uh, world at the moment because the West has um, uh, demonstrated clearly their set of priorities is not uh, uh, values first. It's interest uh, first. Uh, and we saw this clearly uh, uh, in, in two events that are uh, close to each other um, uh, in terms of timeline. In the situation in Ukraine, we saw the, the West uh, uh, advocating passionately and rightly so for international justice and accountability for victims of international crimes. We saw exceptional devotion of resources, especially um, voluntary contributions uh, to the International Criminal Court uh, um, uh, investigations and financial support and Khrat's uh, personnel, so also human resources to such investigations. Uh, but when it comes to Palestine, all of a sudden, accountability and international justice um, kind of become irrelevant. Uh, I encourage you and, and your viewers to view all of these statements by the EU, by all European countries, by the US, and, and see if there is any mention whatsoever of, of accountability, of justice, uh, of international law. It seems that when it comes to Palestine, uh, the West is only dealing with the Palestinian uh, cause and the Palestinian situation as a security issue, as a security concern, not as a, a cause of rights that recourse to international law 
uh, could provide a path for, for peace and security and stability, but they only view it through the lens of, uh, of security. And it's no secret that the U.S. interest is with, uh, with Israel, uh, um, and therefore they support it uh, regardless. And I think uh, uh, this is not only dehumanizing the Palestinians and hold them, holding them to different standards than any other human beings in the, in the globe, especially the West and their allies, but it's also uh, undermining the very system that the West claims to adhere to and wanting to promote. Uh, people in our part of the world, in the global South, uh, cannot really take our Western colleagues seriously when they speak about human rights violations and international law, because uh, uh, clearly this is not a genuine belief in, in, in this value system. Uh, this value system is, um, uh, uh, is, a sub is subject to instrumentalization when politically convenient for these states. And it's very unfortunate because, uh, as you know, in, in the past uh, decades, um, to be more uh, specific, perhaps after the Cold War, uh, the, Cold, uh, the Cold War, um, the West, the US uh, and European countries had the absolute power and control of the world to, to enforce uh, this system that emerged after World War II, including the Nuremberg trial uh, uh, principles, which was the uh, international uh, criminal tribunal that tried war criminals and, and criminals uh, who committed aggression uh, from the Nazis uh, at that time. Uh, but they don't seem to adhere to, this, uh, to these principles. And this actually makes you wonder, um, do they really view uh, Nuremberg uh, uh, as a contribution to, to our collective uh, 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 let's say, um, our collective heritage as a human being. So does this set of, va of, of values, the criminalization of aggression and the, the, the necessity uh, to provide justice for victims of all crimes and crimes against humanity, does it apply to everyone or only when the victim is the white man, in a way? Obviously, we've got scores of examples where the West has benefited from international humanitarian law not being upheld. You look at Iraq, you look at Afghanistan. But this latest chapter really seems to have struck a chord when it comes to the hypocrisy of not enforcing humanitarian law, even while bleating about it. The question I have is, is this posing a real existential crisis for the existence of the Geneva Conventions, for the ICC, is this going to lead to a shift in power when it comes to who is the arbiter of humanitarian law? And will we need to redraft a load of legislation for a post-war consensus again? Well, first of all, let me just maybe set the record straight. The problem is not with the rules. The problem is not with the law itself. It's not with the body of laws we, we, we have. Of course, it still needs uh, improvement. It needs to reflect the legal systems and, and beliefs of all peoples of the world, not only Western legal systems. Uh, but what, what's at stake at the moment is the credibility of, uh, of the West in enforcing uh, these laws, but also the, the credibility of certain institutions like the ICC. This is the litmus test uh, for the ICC. And when we say uh, the Palestinian people indeed need the ICC because they need justice, but we do believe that the ICC needs the Palestinian people uh, as much, if not more, uh, because so far, uh, the ICC uh, uh, work and the, IC the cases that have um, have been taken 
by the ICC and the, the trials that have occurred seem to have aligned well with Western uh, foreign policy. Until now, we don't have uh, any trial against any of those Western states or any of, the, of their allies. Uh, we haven't seen the wheel of justice uh, uh, running principally on, on all perpetrators, regardless of the nationality of that perpetrator. And Palestine here is, uh, I believe, the litmus test, not only to, to international law or the, the International Criminal Court, but to the whole world order, that we are under the illusion that is representative of all people and that we are we are living in a post-colonial world where we're all equals and there is no uh, masses and slaves. We need to to uh, to make sure that this is the reality and the situation in Palestine, the question of Palestine, that is in, pr in principle uh, a cause of uh, justice, a matter of rights. Uh, uh, the, the natural thing would be is to recourse to uh, international law and international courts as any civilized nation uh, would do. It's quite uh, uh, astonishing when you see uh, uh, the West uh, not even uttering the words of international justice or accountability when, it, when it's coming uh, uh, to the situation uh, uh, in Palestine. So yes, indeed, it's, it's undermining uh, the credibility of, uh, uh, of Western states, the credibility of all of those uh, liberal democracies. That, uh, that claim that they uh, abide by international law while they continue to send arms and weapons to a regime that is committing crimes on a daily basis. Uh, and they know that that regime is committing crimes. They're being complicit in these crimes. So I think uh, there is an, an overarching effect, not only when it comes to, like not only on Palestine and the Palestinians themselves, but also on, on all these liberal democracies that claim to abide by international law uh, and now seem to, to, uh, to put it aside when, uh, when it's politically uh, inconvenient. Thank you everyone so much for watching this evening. Remember you can tune in tomorrow night at 6pm to get another installation of Navara Live. But for now, you have been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com support.